Hindu Americans fighting bias at home and abroad. The New York Times published a piece a few years ago that talked about the sari being a symbol of sort of violent Hindu nationalism. The sari is the oldest garment in like human history. It has nothing to do with Hindu violence. So it's incredibly insidious, right? From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. India, an ancient civilization with ancient traditions, deities, and beliefs. Amid the Western media political stories of Hindu nationalism and anti-Muslim discrimination, a background picture of Hindu phobia and anti-Hindu bias lurks. To understand this dynamic from absolute square one, Beliefs producer Jay Woodward talked with second-generation Hindu-American scholar, activist, and writer Indu Viswanathan. She is a doctoral candidate at Teachers College. Her research focuses on the transnational consciousness of second-generation Indian-American teachers. Indu, thank you for joining us on Beliefs. I'm happy to be here. On Beliefs, we, we really focus around the, the lived experience. I thought maybe we could talk today about the Hindu-American experience. In order to get to that conversation where we can start to understand some of the legislation, some of the protests in India, some of the tensions in the Kashmir, in, in Pakistan, in Bangladesh, in the surrounding communities, and why there are so many misconceptions, can we start at the experience of being a Hindu American? Can you tell me what it is like for you? Sure, I'm happy to. And um, obviously, I can't speak for all Hindus or Hindu Americans, not just because I can't, but also because there are so many ways of being Hindu, right? Like Hinduism uh, is a foreign name that was given to us. Uh, it's not uh, an indigenous name. It was given to us by Alexander the Great. How did that happen? So Hindu is not actually even Hindu. It's not how we refer to ourselves. Uh, wow, we're off on a great start, aren't we? It is now. It's become the common way of referring to ourselves, but uh, Hindus would refer to it as Sanatana Dharma. Um, and it's it's an indigenous knowledge system. It's actually a, a group of indigenous knowledge systems all below the Indus River Valley system. And so that's how it got the name Hinduism. And it's misinterpreted and miscategorized and misshelved as a religion. Um, and religion is certainly a part of it, but not in a way that is necessary, maps on to Abrahamic understandings of religion. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think there's so much there to unpack. Um, so within it is not just religion, there's psychology, there's philosophy, there's logic, there's laws, there's rules of governance, uh, there's ways of knowing, ways of being, all of these things that fall into you know, in the West, you might call it philosophy and psychology and civics and all of these things. There are indigenous ways of understanding all of those things that are a part of Hinduism. And that's why people will describe Hinduism as, as not just a religion, but a culture. That's sort of like a shorthand way of saying that it's, it's a lived religion or it's a lived, it, it's, it's how people live. It's a way of life. Uh, which is a very simplistic way of saying 
how we think about the world right now and the modern world and, and what are all the categories of being and thinking about the world, that's not universal. Mm-hmm. That there was, a, there was and is a completely different way of thinking and being and all of these things in the world that you wouldn't necessarily call religion that, is a, that, is, that are Hindu ways of looking and being in the world. Did you tell me just now in a really nice way that it is so unlike anything that I know and that it's is something else? I did. <laughs> Do you find that a lot of, um, I'll just say people who look like me, make that mistake a lot? I think so. I think it's because that's what we're taught. That's what we're taught in school. That's And... And this is not just the United States. This is the West. This is the modern West. We are taught that these are the categories. There's religion. There's psychology. There's secularism. There's laws. There's governance. There are all these things. And, and this is how we look at the world. These are lenses to look at the world. And the, the lenses of Sanatana Dharma are really different, as are, uh, I would say that they closely relate to other indigenous traditions much more closely. You, you can understand them much better if you think of, of all of this and acknowledge all of this as indigenous rather than as religious, uh, as emerging from the earth, right? Like Sanatana Dharma Hinduism is not anthropocentric, unlike Abrahamic faiths. It's a huge, huge, huge difference, right? Mm. Is that because it's easier for us to get our head around a monotheistic concept? And that the indigenous cultures that you're speaking of quite often tend to be polytheistic. Again, I think polytheistic is a term that is for monotheists. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, so within Sanatana, within Hinduism, I'll just say Hinduism because that's what everyone understands. Within Hinduism, you have um, different sampradayas, different schools, including uh, our own version of atheism, right? So the modern version of atheism, people associate it as sort of relating to all religion, but there are ways of being a Hindu atheist, right? Um, but in, in the form or the version or the sampradaya of, of Hinduism that I follow is Advaita, which is non-dualistic. So there is no, the divine is everything. Everything is one uh, in a way that's, much more poetic and embodied, but I guess could relate to something along the lines of quantum mechanics. Everything is one, right? Uh, A monotheistic religion is based on belief. Indigenous knowledge traditions are based on experience. So the whole religion-science divide makes absolutely no sense to us. Insofar as you understand how I'm thinking, and I can't understand how you're thinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. What is the experience of being not just Hindu, but Hindu-American, of living amongst people who can't even understand how you think? Uh, it's been, it's enriching in that um, it gives me a certain amount of dispassion, which I really appreciate because it sort of connects me more to or it detaches me from some of the superficiality of things. I get to be uh, in witness consciousness, we call it, Sakshi, which is actually the name of my dissertation. Uh, And so I get to sort of be an observer, which I appreciate. Um, It's painful. It's painful 
especially now uh, in the ways in which Hinduism is being depicted. And it's being, it's depicted in very overtly uh, old school anthropological ways. These tribal people with their strange beliefs. Um, the New York Times published a piece a few years ago that talked about the sari being a symbol of sort of violent Hindu nationalism. The sari is the oldest garment in like human history. It has nothing to do with Hindu violence. So it's incredibly insidious, right? Um, the other ways I say I would say it manifests is if your lens on the world, if your way of understanding the world is oneness, if there is no difference between the divinity of animals and plants and the earth and yourself, it's all one, then you don't need animal rights, then you don't need feminism because it's it's a part of how you're looking at the world. You only need those things if they don't exist in your existing paradigm. And so that's been, it's been painful to see my tradition accused of all of these, um, not the society, but the actual tradition be accused of being misogynistic, of being barbaric, when animal rights and feminism and, and every, every rights group you can think of, every marginalized group you can think of, these movements exist only because the central paradigm doesn't include all of that. Mm. So that hypocrisy and that lack of self-awareness uh, that I see around me and the, the arrogance around it is incredibly painful. It's, I haven't deeply studied Abrahamic traditions, uh, but from what I see of the societies that have been built, at least this society that has been built from it, uh, despite claims of secularism, you know, we still use a Gregorian calendar. I mean, everything is still very deeply based in a very specific tradition. Um, I forgot where I was going. You know, many Americans would agree with you that it is, as in spite of its claims to secularity, it is inherently a Christian nation because those are so baked in to its roots and we can try calling ourselves something else, but we're not doing a terribly good job at that. Uh, I can give an example, actually. I was, I was at the movies with my kids, and um, it was a pretty empty theater. I forget what movie it was. Um, and uh, my younger son put his feet on the seat in front of his. He just stretched out his feet and put them up. And the other one said, put your feet down. And he said, well, no one's there. And he said, yeah, but that's where our heads rest. We don't keep our feet where heads rest. And so it's this, it's a sensibility and a sensitivity to the flows of energy and, and reverence that's baked in that is easily interpreted by monotheists and secularists both as superstition, mm. right? That's not superstition. That's acknowledging that that's where people keep their heads. And there's a certain flow of energy that happens in people's heads and to keep your feet which are not only dirty, but energy flows out through your feet in a certain direction to keep your feet there um, is, is, is damaging, is, is a negative thing. It's not something we want to do, and we need to be mindful of all of these things. And we are, and it's, you know, I remember attending a music class, music together, one of these things with my son, my firstborn, when he was about six months old, and the, and the music teacher asked all the kids to 
tap the drum with their feet. And I refuse to let my son tap the drum with their feet because musical instruments are Saraswati and we honor instruments and anything with knowledge. And so we don't put our feet on that because energy flows in a certain direction. And so, and, and watching everyone else put their feet on the instrument was, that's really painful, right? Mm. And so raising my children, these are now third generation Hindu Americans, um, first or second grade, my, my son came home from school and they were like, and, and he asked, you know, why does everyone only believe that there's this one God? Don't they know that it's everywhere? Mm. And if it is everywhere, doesn't that make it one? It's oneness, but it's not this one separate dude in the sky, right? It's everything. It's everywhere. It's all around us. And so there's this, this reverence that you see, again, I don't want to generalize, but you do see this across indigenous cultures. You saw it in Hawaii. You saw it uh, in, you see it all across North America. Um, we, we saw it specifically in Hawaii last summer, these these this deep understanding, not just of this, not just, it, it wasn't, it was understood in the press, uh, at least in the progressive press, that it wasn't just sort of the superstition around this mountain, that there's a way of thinking about this mountain. And that way incorporates what we might even accept as scientific, just a different type of, of scientific lens on it. Yet the same... I don't want to say claims, the same outlook espoused by Hindus in India is sneered at by, quote, liberal, secular Indians as superstitious and backwards. And this, again, this is how why I referred earlier to India not as a new nation, but as an old civilization throwing off the yoke of colonialism, but also coloniality, which is a different concept than colonialism, right? Colonialism is very much can be understood in 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 gross material ways, governance and laws and militarism and financial flows. Coloniality is a mindset and it is um, premised on its counterpart, uh, which is modernity. So coloniality is that everything that's being colonized is backwards, is superstitious and is not worthy because modernity is the thing that we want. And so this battle continues in India. And the voices that call themselves marginalized in India, um, but are actually the voices of the elite, and find their way to shaping the dominant narrative of what we hear in the mainstream Western press is that mindset that has accepted this modernity, coloniality binary. And the people who are, whether or not they realize it, um, the people who are fighting against it are saying, it's not that, you know, actually on the phone yesterday when we spoke, you said um, thousand, a thousand years of colonization at some point don't cultures and civilizations just evolve. That's very much this coloniality, modernity, false binary, right? Because the presumption there is that Hinduism is not, has no modern currency, and is not contemporary and has no relevance to modern living at all. That's the premise of it. And the argument being made by people who are standing up against, quote, secularists, and I'll get to that in a moment, uh, is that, no, you're talking about one way of looking at the world and we're talking about another equally relevant 
and indigenous way of looking at the world, and that's what we're fighting for. So one of the reasons I came to find you to have this conversation is because I've been alerted that the ways that I'm trying to understand some of the news coming out of India is uh, incorrect, is um, based on what I carry with me as an American, as a white person, as a person who, who grew up um, with a very Christian normative understanding. And I'm certainly not alone in that. But being that I come from an Abrahamic universe and I want to understand what's happening in India and how it influences the region and how it influences America, I can't do that until I first understand. It's a whole different thing. It's a whole different thing. It's a, it's a civilization, right? So what would it take to frame a civilization? It's, it's not the same rules. It's, it's, a, it's a different civilization altogether. And so I think it's really hard for people who don't have that, right? Like, like it, it would be hard for someone who isn't bilingual to truly understand the nuance of words in another language that don't exist in their language, right? It's, very, it's a really difficult thing, even if you want to do it. And then on top of that, most people don't want to do it because they're quite satisfied in thinking they understand. Mm. Um, and so then it becomes easy to sell them this story of this is what's happening there. And then I think also, and I say this as, as a progressive American, uh, it's very in vogue to, to wring our hands at things. And that's not bad. I'm not saying that as a criticism. It's just an observation uh, there are a lot of things that we should be wringing our hands at uh, right now in the United States, of course. Um, but it just, when, our, when we become overwhelmed with that and then we look at another country and we say, oh, this is happening there too. It's happening here, it's happening there. Um, I think on some emotional, psychological level, it just becomes easier to manage because otherwise it's too much information. Mm. It's really too much. Even for myself, as I've delved into trying to unpack what's happening in India for my peers here, I found myself having to actually detach a little bit from what's happening in the United States. And that comes with a pinch because it's just too much. It's too much to be able to do both. Mm. Uh, and I would say that's probably the dance that I've been doing my whole life, you know, decades I've been doing here uh, is... I understand that something that is happening there is something that would be very difficult for someone here to understand and vice versa. And so there's some level of acceptance that people here are just not gonna get it. And it's interesting, there's also a, a strain of conversation in India, which is like, who the fork cares what anyone in America thinks? <laughs> you know, we're 1.3 billion people doing our own thing and it doesn't matter. Um, unfortunately, it does matter. The United States is a powerful nation that sells weapons to countries, and that has like a very particular implication. And McDonald's. And McDonald's and Baywatch and all that stuff. Um, <laughs> the other interesting thing I'll say, and this is within my discipline, within my institution, I see, um, this is in education, uh, one-tenth of teachers in India have a degree in education. There simply aren't institution, enough institutions to educate teachers in India. Uh, never mind look critically at 
what's being taught in schools. And so I see a lot of folks coming from India to the United States and picking up concepts of progressive education, which progressive education is actually like should have a little trademark after it. It is a very American product. Mm. And I teach progressive education models to teachers in the United States, but I see people coming from India and exporting it back to India or, or importing it to India when they get back and applying it in ways that uh, are painful only in that they're retrofitting this 7,000-year history. Uh, not even 7,000. They're importing, they're, they're retrofitting a 70-year history uh, into progressive American models and making everyone play certain roles in order for that to make sense. Well, we want to do that, don't we? We want to find ways to look at our lived experience and... Because of general goodwill, we want to be able to say, oh, I understand what that is, that maps onto me. So when I'm looking at the news coming out of India with a Citizen Amendment Act, and I can immediately say that is a Muslim ban, because that's the easiest way for me to get to, from point A of not knowing anything to point B of having figured out how I'm going to feel about it. Yes, and... I think we've been conditioned to think it's okay, not only okay, but that uh, we are being, that it's woke to suspect Hindus who are political. It's also woke to identify, to um, call out Islamophobia, anti-Semitism. Why don't we have that same understanding of, of anti-Hinduism, of Hinduphobia? Uh, again, because a lot of these lenses are uh, come out of the United States, right? And because Hindus, I'm putting this in quotes, Hindus are successful here. You know, and it's interesting because there are a lot of parallels between how anti-Semitism is constructed. And that's not a coincidence. Both of those actually emerged from the same German academic institutions uh, during the same time period. So you had anti uh, Semitism and anti-Brahminism or anti-Hinduism emerging from the same departments of the same German academies during the same time period, using the same exact tropes. Uh, so just as you know, Jews can't be uh, per, can't be are not discriminated against because look how successful they are. It's a similar argument made about Hindus, right? So I think again, this Hindus are the white people of India veil. Um, whoa, whoa, whoa! Tell me about. You just said the white people of India. Yeah. So this is the, this is such a common, such a common trope that I've actually had professors at institutions in the United States say it to me. So that Hinduism becomes immediately becomes a privilege that you have to name, right? So you're you're saying white people of India to mean the ones that are the most privileged, that have, and I'm just guessing here the least understanding of their privilege and sometimes the least amount of sympathy for people who are saying, I don't have your privilege right. and why don't you respect that? Right. And also like the ultimate oppressors, like you're born a Hindu, you're born an oppressor. Did I just explain white privilege to you? A little bit. <laughs> That's okay. Copy that. <laughs> so I think this left right thing, I think this is, gotten a lot of people confused, right? Because it's something that's been taken up in 
in India in a way that mimics the West but doesn't actually have much purchase when you dig deep into it. And uh, Vedic scholar David Frawley has a wonderful talk on this that I recommend. Um, but in essence, he says, if you look at the left in the United States, and if you go really far left, you get hippies and tree huggers and people doing yoga, ironically, mm. and uh, vegans and every kind of activist that you can imagine that speaks up for marginalized groups, uh, including indigenous people. And on the right, the very extreme far right, you have Christian nationalists, let's say. Mm. When you look at India, the left are secularists. Okay, so that tracks, religious freedom kind of tracks, except that secularism in India has a very different history and was added to the constitution in a way that specifically disenfranchises Hindus and institutionally targets Hindus, Hindu religious institutions and cultural centers, um, and also openly mocks Hinduism, mocks vegetarianism, mocks the animal rights that are embedded into, I, I want to say not just Dharma traditions, all, I mean, not just Hinduism, but all Dharma traditions, Buddhism and Jainism and Sikhism, uh, but specifically Hindus, mocks our use of things in nature and natural remedies, mocks all of these things that are taken up by the, the left in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. So you would never see someone in the left, on the left in the United States mocking indigenous medicines or indigenous ways of knowing, but that's precisely what you see from the left. Uh, and almost ironically and incredibly painfully from Hindu secularists, so people who say, I'm, I'm, I'm owning my Hindu privilege and also look at these ridiculous Hindus who are cow piss drinkers and uh, cow dung worshippers. I mean, these are actual things that people are tweeting and, and no one bats an eye about it. And I don't think people here know how to read that. They don't understand what that means. They don't understand the significance of that. You'll have people um, who claim their Hindu privilege and then will tweet images sneering at a conch shell that represents, you know, or, or some other Hindu iconography that's in an airport in India, but then later on tweet images celebrating uh, a mosque or show them wearing a hijab and celebrating that. And so there is some disconnect there, right? Like it seems to be speaking this, the, the language of supporting Muslims, but why is it also openly and intentionally and consistently smearing Hindus? It doesn't seem to make sense. That doesn't track with this notion of religious freedom at all. Asking you to speak for 1.3 billion people on two continents in many different thought traditions is not something that you're able to do. And I have very tiny shoulders, so. I am likewise not able to speak for um, all of the people in my country that look like me that don't know um, things the way I don't know them, but I can thank you for my education today. It's interesting when people thank me for teaching them or for speaking to them. And for me, when people are, are open to hearing this, that provides so much relief. 
um, that it doesn't feel at all. Like I, I almost have to laugh when people thank me or, or apologize for being a burden because the burden is not being able to talk about this. Thank you for joining us on Beliefs. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Our guest was academic, writer, activist, and educator, Indu Viswanathan. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer. Theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker. Thank you for listening.